This is Conducting Business. I'm Naomi Lewin. You've heard of the Song of the Summer. Well, this was arguably the classical Song of the Summer, the opera Written on Skin by English composer George Benjamin, which had its American stage premiere at the Mostly Mozart Festival this August. It got standing ovations from audiences and rave reviews from critics, but not all of them. This summer also saw another big premiere, Cold Mountain, by American composer Jennifer Higdon at Santa Fe Opera. Higdon and Benjamin's pieces have sparked a larger debate over the state of contemporary American opera, touching on questions of quality, visibility, and frequency of performance. To talk about this, we have three guests. Here in the studio are Mark Skorka, president and CEO of Opera America, which represents North American opera companies, and Corey Ellison, dramaturg at the Glyndebourne Festival in England. She also teaches at Juilliard and the American Lyric Theater. On the phone is David Gockley, who is entering his 10th and final season as general director of San Francisco Opera. Both there and in his previous job running Houston Grand Opera, he brought many new operas to the stage. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. Thanks. Anne Majette really stirred up an online debate with her article, Written on Skin and the Problem of New Opera. She wrote, over and over again, we hail as moderately successful works that would have no chance of interesting a non-operatic audience, or give a pass to work that if we encountered it in a theater or cinema, we'd have no hesitation about panning. Corey, does she have a point? Well, I think that sometimes, yes, what she says is true sometimes, and I think also the converse can be true, that criticism can be unnecessarily harsh sometimes. But um, in the case of Written on Skin, I do have to say that the raves were more unanimous across the boards for it than for just about any other contemporary work I've heard in a long time, in the sense that the critical reaction to it was very strongly positive, but also the popular reaction to it, you know, audiences. And interestingly, audience members who generally are conservative in their operatic tastes responded to it very strongly, as well as those who are particularly interested in new music. So that, to me, was very interesting. Mark, were you at the Muslim Mozart Festival to see it? I was. Uh, I did see Written on Skin, the last performance of it, and I admired it a great deal. Would I give it a rave? I'd withhold that until I saw it again. I've only seen it once. But I think that one of the larger questions that uh, Anne begs with her comments is, are we talking about our reaction to an evening in the theater? Or are we talking about uh, supposition that a piece may or may not make it into the canon? And for new works to compete with the canonic repertoire, it's a real challenge. We have tens of thousands of operas written over 400 years, and the top 10 of those, or the top 100 of those, represents a distillation of four centuries of creative churn. Written on Skin was a wonderful afternoon. I saw the final matinee. I am unconcerned with whether it will make it into any kind of canon. I'd like to see it again. For me, that was a successful afternoon. David, are you familiar with Written on Skin? Yeah, I happened to see it in Munich, two or three years ago at the Prince Regenten Theater uh, in one of its engagements post-Aix-en-Provence. And uh, I was fascinated to see it because it received very nice notices in, in uh, Aix. You know, I, I think it's a connoisseur's piece. 
I think its musical language is extraordinarily complicated, you know, postmodernist modernism. It's tough to take, and like a lot of the modernist operas, they don't really exist other than a true theatrical uh, realization. I mean, are you going to sit down and play that at dinner or after <laughs> dinner? You may, but I, I'm not. Uh, it's complicated, challenging music to respect, not to love. And I think New York feels, I don't know, envious in one way and critical in another way of all the new operatic activity taking place outside of New York and are willing to dismiss it as being tap. And and therefore, when something like the Benjamin comes along, they can jump on that and think it's the bee's knees. When, as far as I'm concerned, in, in many ways, it's just rehashing the modernism uh, that has bit the dust again and again mm-hmm. and again over the last 50 years. That makes me ask, want to ask then, what do you want from a new opera? Do you want something that you will want to sit down and listen to over and over again that play maybe not necessarily at dinner, but... Ideally, that's what I'm searching for. And uh, there are composers, not necessarily young composers, but that are practicing and refining their craft to the point where they have music that audiences can immediately embrace. If they don't immediately embrace it, they're not going to come back, and we're we're going to find ourselves with empty seats. I have a 3,200-seat house. I'm trying to find the pieces that people are fascinated with but are left with a really positive impression. I think we see a trend now with a new generation of composers who are returning the art form to the theater. They are not creating works that live in an auditory environment necessarily. I agree completely with David that I wouldn't put on a recording of written on skin while I'm having dinner or taking a bath. (laughs) Um, So I think we have to ask ourselves, and of course David approaches it from the brilliant general director that he is with a 3,200-seat theater, But we do have to ask ourselves in this equation whether we embrace opera as a theatrical art form where it does happen all together, music and staging and design in the theater, as opposed to hoping it will exist separately in an auditory environment. Corey, I know you have a lot to say about this, especially as somebody who helps composers create new operas. It's interesting, Anne Majette's list that was gleaned from various readers who wrote in on her blog. First of all, it's 60-some-odd operas, and of them, only, I think, about 15 of them are by non-American composers. Those 15 operas are generally in a much different style, a much more modernist style or spectralist style, whereas here... I still think we're working with the main lingua franca being the the post-Verismo sort of American Puccini, very refined, very Americanized, but basically tonal and so on, and, and basically very linear narrative and representational. 
if you look at what American operas have been popular and successful, one thing is that very few Europeans would know any of the operas or composers that are on this list. That list, and, by the way, is, is one that yeah, Americans crowdsourced yes, from her article. Right, of, of course. Operas that people would consider right. great new. And also, the, the, the uh, conversely, the fact that new operas that do well in Europe tend to be more modernist and, and so on. And also that goes back to what David was saying about having to sell tickets in his house that traditionally European opera houses are much better funded and can Don't care. afford, yeah, they can afford to take more risks in terms of musical style. Ticket prices are lower. Theaters average about 1,100 seats. Right. In Europe, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It it's a, a different, it's a different landscape. I think, though, in the musical vocabulary, and David brought up the challenging musical vocabulary of Written on Skin, I think one of the, the keys for me, and this becomes personal, not uh, authoritative, is does the music, whatever its language, does the music take us beyond the words to inform us at some deeper level about the characters or the emotions that they're experiencing? In a lot of the new opera, whichever side of the Atlantic it may be written on, a lot of the new opera that I hear doesn't take me to that place, that I get left with a lot of accompanied text, and I don't feel that I've had an expanded emotional experience. Mm -hmm. Let me just say that it doesn't do, you know, uh, sometimes or often opera will not take full advantage of its own resources. There are stories that cry out to be sung, and the words really have to be just a framework for the music to take flight on the wings of those words, and very often that's not what's happening. Well, you're talking about how you choose what needs to be sung. David, I want to ask you, as somebody who has such a long track record of commissioning new works, how did you choose your projects? Well, my initial god was Carlisle Floyd, and I, I realize he's kind of maybe passe or whatever, but I felt audiences really respond to him. And so my formula is to find someone who can write lyrically and for the theater and whose musical language is diverse enough and structured so that it can carry an audience all the way through an evening that it has its highs and lows, its climax, its recapitulation, and also that the story has a fascination and maybe even we're familiar with a story like Cold Mountain. A lot of people had seen a movie or had read the the novel, and therefore they bring something uh, to the table that can be expanded uh, by the operatic interpretation. Not having the... To having selling all those tickets. Well, I was about to ask you, yeah, not having the government funding that you would have in Europe, did you have to take into account whether you would be able to sell that opera to your audience in Houston well, or in course. San Francisco? How did of you Of course. We offer six performances in a 3,200 seat house and you know, we literally economically have got to sell a minimum of 80% to make it at all worthwhile to us and make any kind of economic sense. So how did you lead your audiences to water and get them to drink? You know, not all of them succeeded. And some of the more famous ones like Nixon in China and 
Bernstein's A Quiet Place, which we did in Houston, were savaged when they were brought out originally, but now they're thought of as uh, great pieces of the American canon. But I, I have tried to find people that can write lyrically, who have a sense of the theater and are willing to embrace subjects that have, yes, and I'm going to say it, a bourgeois <laughs> appeal. Because that is what we are. We are a bourgeois art form. And Written on Skin is not a bourgeois piece. It is a very, very specialized piece for an elite, intellectually oriented audience that is not our audience. You're and, saying uh, that as though may- this is maybe there not is a, a good maybe thing. There is a, I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing. It's just the truth. And I think that's, that is largely true, what David says. I don't think that American audiences are monolithic, especially these days. And I think some of the smaller uh, opera companies throughout the country and companies that are specifically dedicated to developing new work like Beth Morrison Projects and American Lyric Theater and American Opera Projects and, of course, have a much lower overhead and, and all of that – are finding a, a new kind of an audience that's yeah. younger and, dare I say, more hip, you know, and... Or theatrically oriented. Or, yes, that definitely. But, of course, it's, I think it's largely the behemoth of them all, the Metropolitan Opera, which has created the desire for opera to be theatrical through its HDs more recently and so In on. In movie theaters. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I do think that the larger American opera companies who really do have to think about selling tickets and pleasing their standard repertory audiences have brought us a lot of wonderful works that are based on well-known classics like Moby Dick and Dead Man Walking and Little Women. And and, and yet to to David's very good point about what our audience wishes to hear We have to remember that the great composers, let's just think of Puccini at the beginning of the 20th century and how completely appealing his music is, even while he was being harmonically extremely daring. So I I think the challenge for today's composers is to find their own sweet spot between being truly contemporary and writing in the moment of 2015, if that's when they're writing the opera, and finding a way to connect with the audience. It is an art form, and it's threading a needle between the intellectual and the emotional, between the pleasing and the challenging. And I think there are works today, there are composers today, who are walking that balance beam and experimenting. It's also keep in mind that the great operas we love are the 10th and 15th and 20th operas of those composers. So there's a, a long way to go, but I think skilled composers are learning how to thread that needle. I'd like to get to the other big new opera of the summer, Cold Mountain, which seems more accessible. It's got traditional melodies woven into it and a more conventional storyline that people are familiar with. Does right. that give it more direct appeal, at least here in the States, David? I think it does. My evaluation of it is that it's a very, very good first opera. And while I found the harmonic language and the orchestration uh, very, very pleasing, I find what I find in a lot of even lyrical composers, they don't know how to make their lyricism pay off in 
the important moments. I adored that chorus in Act Two, but uh, but I I did not feel that other aspects of the the story were taken advantage of. But I can see Jennifer Higdon developing as an opera composer in the lyric school if she applies herself uh, and writes three or four more pieces. I see both Corey and Mark, you're both nodding your heads. I think that's definitely true. There's, um, you know, a lot of talent there, particularly in her choral, orchestral, and ensemble writing. I'm very much looking forward to see what else is going to come out of her pen operatic. You know, it's a challenge. I, I left Cold Mountain really wanting to hear Jennifer Higdon's next opera. And yet, having interviewed her, I know that it took two years out of her life. And here is a composer who has such numbers of commissions for works large and small and the the practicality of taking another two-year hiatus from her orchestral writing to compose another opera, I would hope that she was bitten enough by the opera bug to do that. Cold Mountain also raises the question of whether new operas need to be based on something familiar to succeed, like a book or a film or even famous people like the upcoming operas on Steve Jobs and JFK. It helps. Absolutely, it helps. And yet we look at Silent Night, which is an important work that I think really does... That's the Kevin Putz opera The Kevin Putz opera that won the Pulitzer Prize about World War I. And I think it walks the line quite skillfully between angular, muscular contemporary music and beautiful lyrical music. And it is about Christmas Eve, 1914, during World War I. So it's not based on any film or novel that we, that we can point to as a popular work. I wanted to ask David a question because uh, there is the 3,200-seat War Memorial Opera House. But, David, you now have access to the new black box facility over in the Wilsey Center. And I'm wondering how you envision doing new works, smaller works? Do you envision a new and different audience for that venue? Um, Because I think a lot of opera companies are experimenting with found spaces, spaces. second stages, to diversify diversify Uh, the the product. The answer, Mark, is yes, and uh, it's it's exciting, and, and my predecessors will have this wonderful facility next You mean your successors? My successors, yes. To experiment at reasonable cost and reasonable ticket price a whole range of different uh, kinds of musical theater pieces that hopefully will get people more interested in the art form and get more creative output from composers and librettists. This has been Conducting Business. Joining us were San Francisco Opera General Director David Gockley, Opera America CEO Mark Skorka, and dramaturg Corey Ellison. Brian Wise is our producer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.